First Kings 15, <laughs> 1 through 5. Thank you. We dealt with Israel all the way to the northern kingdom, right? And we're going to go back now and look at Judah all the way in the southern kingdom, okay? So, yes, don't worry. We're not going to be long in First Kings. I just want to read this part because it's important. Starts in First Kings chapter 15. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. You can see why this would be confused or so. Like his mother's name was Makkah, the granddaughter of Abishalom, and he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was his heart of his father David. That's what I was looking for. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by uh, setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he had not turned aside from anything that he commanded all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Okay, so the story of the southern kingdom is a little bit different than the story of the northern kingdom. Remember, the the reason this one's different is why Yahweh's promises are still outstanding. And Yahweh made his promise to David. He actually didn't make any of those promises to any of the northern kings of Israel whatsoever. It was only... The Davidic kings who had a special relationship with Yahweh. It was the Davidic kings only who Yahweh had a special interest in because of his promises and because it was through that line that his son Jesus would be born. So we consider in this text how Judah fared a little differently. What we read is a summary of the reign of King Abijam, the second king of Judah after Solomon. And as we read... We saw how Yahweh dealt differently here than he did with Jeroboam, the the king of northern Israel. Why? Well, two things. Notice. Notice that Abijam is compared to who? Who is he compared to? David. All the kings in Judah are going to be compared to David. He is the benchmark of kings. And even though Abijam did evil in the sight of Yahweh... He was not cast off, and his son was established after him, according to verse 4. Why? Because of David. Good. For David's sake. Because Yahweh made a promise to David, and that promise is going to be fulfilled. So, even though the line of David is preserved, that doesn't necessarily mean that Judah's kings were all good kings. In fact, was Abijam a good king? Not really, no. Some of the kings were good, though, and did what was right, but half of them were wicked and did what was evil. So now we move all the way to 2 Kings, and we're going to fly through some of this because, remember, it's a survey. Now we move to 2 Kings, and the day of reckoning has arrived in Judah when Assyria came to attack Jerusalem. Now, you remember Assyria? Who did they attack and take over? They're the nation that just took over the north, Israel. Assyria takes over the north. You know what's interesting? You know what the capital of Assyria was? Samaria. Was it? Jerusalem. Nineveh. Oh, sorry. I was thinking. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. So this actually puts the book of Jonah, what we get there, into context. Jonah's actually supposed to go to these people who eventually will take over the north and tell them, about Jesus. Interesting, right? So, uh, Jonah's actually in First and Second Kings. I don't remember exactly where, but he's there. Uh, once they were done with Israel, they then set their sights on Judah. 
The difference, though, is that in Judah, Assyria encountered something they didn't in Israel. What did they encounter? They encountered a godly king. Somebody read 2 Kings 18, verses 3 through 5. And there's no, there's like one hard word there. Okay, okay. just, okay, good. And Bob. he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all uh, his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden images, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it. And called it that hard word there, Nehusan. He, uh, Good. Verse 5. He trusted in the Lord, God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. Good. Anybody, anybody want to challenge Nehusan? I think it stands, right? We're going to prove that. Let's do that. Nehusan stands. All right. Um, okay, so when the Assyrians tried to lay siege to Jerusalem, the godly king, whose name was, anybody know? Hezekiah knew exactly what to do. He was going to pray to Yahweh, and he's basing his prayer on a petition for Yahweh to glorify himself in saving his people. That's actually what we see in chapter 19, verses 16 through 19, when it says this. This is his prayer. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed him. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, I pray, save us from his hand, all that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are Lord God, you alone. Amen. What does that sound like? All right, so remember there's a major theme in the Old Testament where the key central theme is the glory of the name of the Lord. Anybody know what that is? You want to take a guess? Did you keep saying Yahweh? Is it Yahweh? Well, there, it's, it's an event in the Old Testament is what I'm looking for. There's an event in the Old Testament where the theme is that the Lord's name would be glorified and the people would know that Yahweh is God. Nobody want to guess? The Exodus. Who said that? That's right. The Exodus. Over and over again in the Exodus, we see for the glory of the Lord, so that people will know that Yahweh is the Lord. And what do we see often in Exodus, right? We see tons of times in the Old Testament, people will say, Rahab, right? I've heard of your God. Your God's the God of the, the Exodus, right? So, so we see that actually work. The glory of the Lord, his name, his fame goes throughout the world, and that's exactly what I'm reminded of here in Hezekiah's prayer. It sounds like that king actually has been reading those books of Moses as he ought to have and understood why Yahweh saves his people. He always, always, always saves his people for his own glory. Do you think that prayer was effectual? Yes, sir. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Yahweh spared Judah. We move to chapter 21. And see that history marches on, though, after Hezekiah died. His son, Manasseh, took the throne. And the summary of his reign is the worst yet. See this in verses 11 through 16. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, 
He has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both of his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria with the plumb of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, besides his sin, which he made Judah sin, in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Woo! wipe you like a dish. Um, all right. Just as Jeroboam had sealed the fate of Israel, so Manasseh's sins were so bad that they bring this irrevocable prophecy. Judah is going to be taken captive just like Israel was. And yet turn to 2 Kings 23 and somebody read verses 25 and 26 because I say it's an irrevocable prophecy because of what we read there. Somebody read 2 Kings 23, 25, and 26. Now before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. Okay, is that 2 Kings? Did I get that right? 23, 25, to 26. Mm-hmm. All right, that's good. All right, so this is what we see. Uh, it's over for Judah. It's done. Okay, in the following chapters, there are now going to be three waves of attacks, not by the Assyrians, but do you know who's coming? Who takes over Judah? Babylon. Babylon. All right, so this is going to be important. This is one of the most important things you'll learn. In fact, when I was in Old Testament survey class, my professor, before he left, made us remember 722, 586, right? 722, the north is taken over by the Assyrians. 586, the south is taken over by Babylon, okay? South being Judah. North being Israel. Good. Okay. Just want to make sure you're not, we're not thinking of America. Um, so we're not Mormons here. That's not how that works. All right. So uh, with each attack, they take a few more captives away until they finally just flat out level Jerusalem and that great temple and the third attack. And by the end of the book, the people of Judah are in Babylon. They're far away from the land, far away from God's presence and blessing, far away from, from the temple. In fact, the temple's leveled to the ground. Do you remember 1 Kings 8 where we started last week? Remember that height of, of redemptive history? How everything was happening was wonderful. God's presence with his people. God's people were there. And God's place under God's rule. Israel had more boundaries than they ever had. How did we get here from 1 Kings 8? Well, okay, but the real question is, and all of that, is what about the line of David? Has Yahweh reneged on his promises? Or was Yahweh too weak to stop so great a force as the terrible Babylonian army? Well, we know all this happened because of the sins of the kings, but it sure looks doubtful that anything can be salvaged from this situation. In fact, there's one king who was taken captive to Babylon, and his uncle was actually set up in Jerusalem by the Babylonians. However, this king, Zedekiah, rebelled against the Babylonians, and look what happens to Zedekiah in 2 Kings 25, verse 7. I don't even want to read it, but somebody else read it for me. I'm a wuss. 
They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, then put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and down him with bronze feathers and bronze feathers. All right, did y'all hear that? Slayed his sons in front of him, then they took his eyes. That's so terrible, right? For two reasons. One, just obviously it's just some simple horror of the act itself. But second, the last thing that he saw was the line of David extinguished. If he's the king and his sons are dead, who is going to reign in the line of David after him? If we're looking back to Genesis 3 and looking at this great war between the seed of the serpent and seed of the woman, we're thinking, oh no, is Yahweh's promise in Genesis 3.15 falling to the ground? This is the way the book ends on a real cliffhanger. What does all this mean for the promise of David? What does it mean to the promises of Abraham? What does it mean for the seed of the woman? Has the serpent finally finished the job and killed off the seed of the woman? What does it mean for God's plan of redemption? Well... Look at 2 Kings 25, 27 through 30. Because wait, there's just a little tiny ray of hope left. There is still one descendant of David still alive. You remember that king that was in prison? Captured right before Zedekiah took the throne? Jehoiachin is his name. He's in exile in Babylon, so that's not good. But look at verse 27 through 30 of chapter 25. But it happened in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family, came with ten men and struck and killed Gedaliah, the Jews, as well as the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. And all the people, small and great, and the captains of armies arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the twelfth month, on the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. It's one hope, right? The line of David. God sovereignly worked. Look, it's not much, but it's, it's hope. The last sentence of the book affirms that one, one descendant of David is still alive. That's a cliffhanger, right? What a literary masterpiece. Solomon's kingdom was magnificent indeed, but surely it wasn't the full realization of the kingdom of God. With every king's sin, with every king's death, and with the downfall of Judah, we are reminded that something greater must be still ahead. If the greatest manifestation of the kingdom of God ever can fall, then it must not have been the greatest. Something more has to be in store. That's something more, of course is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So the King of Israel was a shadow, was a type, was always pointing us forward to the realization and full embodiment of the kingdom of heaven, a phrase that Jesus uses over and over again. This is meant to prefigure and contrast with Jesus Christ. He is the king that never fails. He's the king who perfectly represents his covenant people before God. He's the king whose kingdom never falls or fails and forever saves all who repent of their own covenant unfaithfulness and look to him as their covenant representative and head. But we can't get too far ahead of ourselves, right? Because right now, in the thread of redemptive history, the kingdom has fallen, and it's fallen from great heights. In fact, this fall in exile is just like the first we read about. Remember the first exile ever? When was that? First exile ever. Adam and Eve. Thank you. 
<laughs> Trying to lay that one up for you. So, all right, Eden. But this is just like Eden, isn't it? Again, what? God's people are kicked out of God's presence because of their sins. Again, it will be up to God in his sovereign grace and mercy to rescue them and bring them back to a place where they can have fellowship with him again. That's where we're going next. The people of God are going to need a second exodus, okay? But let me apply First and Second Kings really quick, give you one quick application, an easy application, and then we'll launch into Chronicles. There's a lot that can be drawn out here. We looked at even some last week, but, but something should be said about the sobering responsibilities of leadership. Whether it's leadership in the home, husbands, leadership in the church, or you're coaching a Little League baseball team. As the leader's ethical life goes, so he is going to lead his followers. Our sins, listen, our sins are never private. Rather, they always have ramifications upon others. If God has made you a leader in any way, then understand your ethical behavior will rub off on others. Even if your sin is private and no one sees it, be advised and warned that these things have a way of creeping out and affecting others. To walk uprightly before the Lord, fear him and meditate upon his statutes day and night. Write them upon the tablet of your heart. Let's move in to Chronicles. Chronicles, we start with the context. Just like First and Second Samuel, just like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles was written as historical. One book. Just one. It is historical, though. It's the genre historical. Um, we're originally written as one book, so we're going to treat them as one book. And just as the name suggests, the Chronicles are Chronicles. A collection, a variety of already existing texts, and it has a number of different authors. We don't know who the actual chronicler was who assembled the stories and put them together in one book. All we know about him is he did this work after the exile was completely over. Okay, Some suggest it may be Ezra. The, the priest will study the next lesson. But what's important for us, though, is to understand the historical and redemptive historical context of the chronicles. Um, because those two are, are kind of different from each other. right? The historical context it covers the entire history of the Davidic dynasty in Jerusalem. So really what we just covered from 1 Kings is what's covered in Chronicles. Um, the stories in the Chronicles match the stories, give or take a number of things, that we find in 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. The story picks up with David ruling all over Israel in and, and peace in 1010 B.C. It travels through the reign of Solomon to the division of the kingdom, to the exile of Judah, and even has a brief account of the end of the exile in 537 B.C. As I said, this is the, the, the Old Testament book that covers the longest period of history, about 500 years of history is covered in First and Second Chronicles. So, <coughs> excuse me. Now, even though the history told is 99.99% pre-exilic, right, pre-exile, the chronicler's theology is 100% post-exile. What do I mean by that? Well, he's retelling those who have come out of the exile. He's retelling the story in order to make a point. And you can tell that, that his point is, is different than the other books that tell the same stories by what he continues to include and what he leaves out and even how he rewords some things. Mainly, there is a returning focus on the covenant Yahweh made with David and on the temple. It's all intended to bring the people joy 
and hope now that the exile is over. So, what's the theological point that Chronicles wants to make? What's the theme? The theme is this. Yahweh is faithful to his covenant promises to David, and that affects all the peoples. All the peoples will find joy and be blessed in their relationship with Yahweh as he dwells among them and his people. And they will be given the privilege of prayer and worship when they are faithful to him from the heart. Notice David is going to be the central earthly figure. The promises Yahweh made to him recounted in 1 Chronicles 17. They're the backdrop against which everything else needs to be understood. David is also presented, by the way, as, a, as the good king. That if others would just emulate the faithfulness of David, the disaster of the exile would not have happened. Now that's really interesting coming off Sunday morning, isn't it? So, it's interesting that David's failures and his sins aren't really told in his account of his reign. What you'll find in 2 Samuel 11 last week is not really mentioned here. Now we know that David's not perfect, right? But, as we're going to come to see very soon, is David still a man after God's own heart? Yes, and therefore he's going to serve as a model for all the other kings. Solomon is also shown in his best light, actually. Solomon's actually given a pretty good deal in First and Second Chronicles. His downfall is missing from the narratives. But the other kings of Judah, they're going to be shown with all their warts. Most were not faithful like David was, so they went into exile. But Yahweh has promised never to take his mercy away from David's house. And so, the return from exile is the important conclusion to the book. Now that the exile is over, the Chronicles focus on how Yahweh has been faithful to his promises thus far. And because he's been faithful to his promises thus far, he will always be faithful to his promises forevermore. So as the theme sentence says, the promise that Yahweh keeps to David affects all the people. And you're going to see that in First and Second Chronicles. There's going to be a phrase that says, All Israel throughout the Chronicles. And, and Israel in that sense means, doesn't just mean the northern kingdom, but, it, but the people of God in general. So it refers more to the people of the south. And as you can see, even in the, the sentence theme, the themes of joy, blessed in relationship with Yahweh, which is what the temple is all about, prayer, and the need for sincere hearts, they're major themes that are going to run through these books. There's also themes like the theology of the temple, theology of the land that we've seen already in Joshua, the word of the Lord, reward, punishment, Fidelity, repentance, God's people, God's name. Lots of important contributions to the Chronicles and the theology therein. The outline's pretty simple, though. Um, outline with pivotal text, you see you've got it there. One through nine is everybody's favorite thing in the Old Testament, genealogies, right? In fact, we're going to read the, all the genealogies tonight. We're going to take the rest of our time just to read chapter one through nine, and everybody's going to get a chapter. Um, some people twice, because there's more than I know. Uh, 10 through 29 of 1 Chronicles is going to be David's story. David, who's depicted as a great leader. 2 Chronicles starts in chapter 1 and ends in verse nine, or chapter 9 with Solomon's story. Solomon, who's depicted as another great leader. And then 2 Chronicles chapter 10 through 36 will be the kings of Judah in the downward turn. So we've already kind of covered a little bit of the history. We don't have to go through all those texts again. And, and really... Because a lot of the stories found in First or in Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, um, I, I don't really want to go through all those texts again that tell the story, even though they're awesome. Um, instead, what I just want to do with the rest of our time, assuming everyone's up to speed at this point in covenant redemptive history, 
is just look at the differences between Samuel and the kings and what we find in the Chronicles. So, so we can add even what they might, we can understand what they might even add to the story of redemptive history. What's different about the Chronicles that's not seen everywhere else, okay? All right. First Chronicles 1 through 9. First thing I want to point out, I think we'll get there, um, is that the Chronicles really have a focus on the whole world. They have a focus on the whole world. They remember and emphasize that the Davidic covenant was given with the intent of blessing the whole world. Anybody think of a text where that's given in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham? Through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay, so they come back to that. Um, this is demonstrated in the genealogy that the Chronicles start off with. This genealogy is, is it's a unique contribution of the Chronicles. And look how it starts. Do you see who the first person mentioned in the chronology is? Adam. Yeah. The father of every human race, right? The point in beginning with Adam's twofold. It's one, to show that Yahweh's promises actually go back a lot further than even David. And then two, we actually know that they go back to Genesis 3.15, right? And two, in order to say that this story of David and his descendants, it doesn't just relate to Judah. It relates to every nation and every person everywhere at all times. This is indeed what we would call a cosmic drama. Then in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, you see that the storyline follows through Abraham and his sons. I'm not going to read those. We're kind of going to just go past that stuff. Verse 34, you're going to see that Abraham's grandson, Israel's mentioned there. In chapter 2, the lineage of Israel is followed through Judah. Then in verse 3 of chapter 2, we get the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, then verse 15 of chapter 2, we get the man of the hour, King David. And the point of all of this is to show that through the years, Yahweh's never forgotten his promises and his plans again and again. And through all the difficulties, he's never been unable to enact that plan and to keep those promises. Lineage of David's sons picks up in chapter 3. It's traced all the way through the exile, all the way to the other side of it. And verse 19 of chapter 3 mentions a man who's going to be very important for us very soon. His name is Zerubbabel. He is the Davidic descendant who's governing Jerusalem after we return from exile. So you remember Jehoiachin, right? Hanging by a thread, last king, into first and second kings. His descendant is going to be Zerubbabel. So the line of David's still there who's going to be governing the people as they return from exile. Not a king, but still in charge of the people in the big line, still there, okay? Uh, so, it's almost as though the chronicler can't wait to get to the end of the book and be like, guys, look, we're back from exile, and Zerubbabel's here, his promises are still intact. So, chapters 4 through 8, more genealogies of more Israel's sons, and, and, and the point here is to show what happened to the north because of their unfaithfulness. The northern tribes, they're not described to have come back like Judah, the sons of David, and the Levites. And then we move on to chapter 9, which draws attention to the Levites, who were responsible for what? The priests. Yeah, the priests. And what did the priests do? They led the people to what? Worship. Worship, right. Absolutely. So, again, the emphasis is on Yahweh's faithfulness and the joy and hope that the people get to continue to worship him. The rest of 1 Chronicles contains the story of David, 
Chapter 17 is really the theological core of that section where David is finally safe in Jerusalem. Yahweh makes his covenant with him, which we've seen in 2 Samuel 7. Um, but, but look at just a few verses there. In fact, let's go ahead and read. Someone turn to 1 Chronicles 17, and you can read verses 11 through 14 for me. 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, and I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him, as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house, and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Okay, so, so here's that promise that's made. And then this theme of David's house, which, remember, we talk about David's house. We're not talking about four walls. We're talking about his dynasty, right? But David's dynasty and the temple that David's first successor is going to build. So uh, as we've seen behind it, behind everything, the intent is that Yahweh will be glorified. So preparation starts then for building the temple, and it takes up a whole lot of the rest of First Chronicles. And when David's done collecting the materials necessary for his son to build the temple, he really prays this wonderful prayer in chapter 29 towards the end of the book in verses 10 through uh, 18. I'm going to read this for you, this prayer, because I honestly, listen, we would all do well to have the same attitude toward the Lord and toward our material possessions. Look what he says. It says, Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly and said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you. We are all our fathers. As we're all our fathers, our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we've prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me and the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now with joy, I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart towards you. Good. You notice there in verse 18 how David prayed that Yahweh would keep the people's hearts? That's another theme that runs all throughout this book. The hearts of the people. Yahweh's ability to hold his sovereign reign over them. It's as though the chronicler is longing for Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant to come to pass now. So that's the first section of the book. First and second section of the book. Now we look at 2 Chronicles chapter 1. 1 through 9, this is the story of Solomon. And as expected, the focus of the story of Solomon is going to be in building the temple, the house of Yahweh. All the while, it's clear that Yahweh is building another kind of house for himself through the line of David. 
theological core of this section is in chapters 6 through 7. Notice the attention to Yahweh's name, his people, the temple, Jerusalem. And David, in fact, somebody read 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. Not all at once, though, because if you all try to do it at once, then you're just going to be talking. Yeah, chapter 6, 5 through 6. Ms. Dawn, thank Since you. Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. And I chose no man as prince over my people Israel, but I've chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there. And I've chosen David to be over my people Israel. Mm, okay. Actually, his prayer in all of chapter 6 is really wonderful. And I greatly encourage everyone to read it sometime this week to adopt its theology into your own prayer life, too. There's really great prayers in Second Chronicles that are helpful. It's a strong emphasis on humility, confession of sins, forgiveness, faith, the glorification of Yahweh's name among the nations of the earth, joy, hope, and sincerity of heart in it. So challenge you to read that. Now, there's something you're going to be familiar with in Second Chronicles chapter 7. We're going to debunk a little bit of that today. Um, Chapter 7 marks the climax of the Chronicles. And really of all redemptive history so far, we've seen this already in 1 Kings 8. This is a reiteration of that in verses 1 through 3. Yahweh's dwelling in his temple, in his chosen city. They've got a faithful king. They worship him in joy. It's really the height of the kingdom. Again, reiteration of 1 Kings 8. So it's not a different height of the kingdom, but just a reiteration. Highest point in all the Old Testament. Um, and then look at verse 10, particularly of Second Chronicles 7. Uh, it says this. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for the good that the Lord had done for David, for Solomon, and for his people, Israel. There's not going to be a greater moment than this until a greater son than even Solomon is born, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now turn your attention to Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Somebody read that for me. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. All right, y'all heard that one before, right? Yeah. All right. Well, well here's, the, here's the point the chronicler wants to drive home to the exiles returning from Babylon. The chronicler is saying that if that was true then, it's true now. We have a fresh start, he's saying, and this is the way forward. Now, how do we often hear that verse used? Usually, it's in the context of, this is my prayer for America, right? Man, America, if we would just humble ourselves, call out, the Lord will come and heal our land. Don't miss the point of that verse. Don't take that verse and jump off the deep end, applying it haphazardly to America, trying to make the case that God is going to heal us of all our woes in America if we'll pray. Why? Well, let me ask you, does America carry any of the redemptive historical significance that the land of Israel did? No. No. So so, how do we apply it then? Because it's got to be applied, right? Well, the application we should make from that verse in 2 Chronicles 7 applies much more to the universal church. The New Testament correlation to the Old Testament land of Israel is anywhere that the people of Christ gather together. So, get this, if we humble ourselves as the people of the Lord, if we set our faces 
to praying, if we are seeking the Lord and repenting, then guess what's going to happen? God's going to heal our churches. That's what we want, right? Even more than a moral America, we want the healing of the churches. And guess what? As the healing of the churches go, they work out better. That's really the issue, right? So 2 Chronicles 7.14, be careful because that's one of those verses sounds really good to put on a mug, right? Yeah. Put up on Facebook and be like, you know what? I know what this country needs. Yeah. Well, no, that's, it's Israel, right? The redemptive historical people of God, it's the land, and that's prefigured to the church. And so it's really what the church needs. Right. Heal our land is to heal the people of God and heal the people of God. Boy, you, it's the start of revival, isn't it? Right. Start of revival. All right. Where are we at? Mm. Bad things happen. Second Chronicles 10 through 36. Just label that. Really, really bad things happen. Uh, but then it's good at the end because the people return in exile. Um, y'all know that, right? Right. Y'all good with that? Yeah. All right. We, we kind of talked about a little bit the hair-raising close that it got to Judah. That's good. Um, but just a, 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 one more thing. Um, Cyrus, his heart, a pagan king, makes the edict that the people return to the land. Which reminds me of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. And... Notice that Cyrus is a Gentile king. Remember, we talked about the beginning of First Chronicles that this was for the nations. This is going to be a national impact here with the rest of the Gentile nations. That's how we see it. Okay, I think that's probably pretty much it. Y'all guys have enough of Old Testament history. Now Justin gets to do three books in one week next time. All right. Any questions about First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, that history? Do you want to know what's going to be on the pop quiz next week? Yeah. Too bad. Uh, no. I think there's something interesting regarding Chronicles. As, as we read Chronicles, it's it's almost kind of painful. It can be a little boring, maybe. You know, you're you're flipping forward to see how much more of these names you have to try to pronounce. That's just you. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, but I heard somebody kind of bring things into perspective, and in the fact that to us it may seem like that, but to the people at that time. They were coming back from being exiled. And so in order to be able to determine who they were, where they belonged, as far as um, the land was divided between the tribes, and so they had to figure out, well, which tribe am I? Where, which land did I? So this was crucial to them. Yeah. Yeah, so I thought that put things in perspective and made it interesting. Yeah, context is pretty important, right? When we're reading the scriptures, it very much is. Yeah. Think about the, the passion and joy they would have read that genealogy with. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's my dad. Right? That's, yeah. my, that's my great-grandfather. That's my land. Well, and again, it, it's so easy for us to detach just this book of the Bible from the story of the thread of scripture, right? Mm. I talk about this all the time in Leviticus, which is like the Bible plan killer, right? Leviticus. You make it through numbers, you're like, yeah. Um, but getting there, you have to get to Leviticus. That's problem. But you know what's interesting about Leviticus? We can't even read through Leviticus. The people were expected to obey Leviticus. Like all of it. Like to a T. We can't even 
read it without being like, this is too much. I don't, what, what the weed offering? I don't understand why. And they were expected to do that. And not only that, that's what the kings were expected to write down. Deuteronomy 17, right? Have memorized. The, the, the Pharisees actually had that law memorized. So I think it, it, it's, it's almost, to your point, it's methodical in a point to say, we could attach that and say, this is not very entertaining reading for me, but to, to, to tap into the story and think, boy, this is what it takes in Leviticus to be holy? Like, this is what it takes to pay for sin? I can't even read this stuff, and yet they're supposed to meticulously obey this to be separate? Yeah, I mean, it's very important. So this is one of the reasons we're doing this in the Old Testament survey is to not have you be detached from the thread of the scriptures, but to read First and Second Chronicles and read it in the sense of get into character and think, I'm coming home from exile, and this is the history of my people. And, and you can tap into that. Like, I know you're not an Israelite, but this is the history of the church, right? This is the means by which God's covenant faithfulness is going to come, and he's going to, going to uphold his promise of King Jesus. You tap into that and said, this is my family history of God's faithfulness in bringing my people out of this land and then, and then bringing them back and holding fast to his promises. So yeah, so, so not even necessarily just reading it as how they would, but read it with you there. Because without Israel, without God being faithful to his promise to Judah, friends, you're not part of the family of God. That's a big deal, right? Yeah. Bob? The best way to get to Leviticus is just read it through the light of the cross. And you can just laugh your way all the way through it. We don't have to do that. <laughs> That's true. I mean, yeah, some of it. We have to be holy. Um, well, but, yeah, but actually, I'll tell you this. Kind of stuff. Read Leviticus along with Hebrews is actually a really okay, good Because yeah, uh, Hebrews is the one that says, yeah, all that stuff, the new covenant's a lot better. <laughs> like all that, it's better just to have Jesus. So, yeah, good deal. Who, Anybody else? Who thought we'd come back to Leviticus in Old Testament too? Yeah. You should have known. <laughs> I'm going to preach through it one day. I promise you. I promise you. It's coming. Go slow. Are you sure? (laughs) Y'all heard Miss Dawn told me to go slow. Six six months in 2 Samuel. All right. All right. Yeah. Okay. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the book of 1 and 2 Chronicles. And Lord, we thank you for the thread of redemptive history. Lord, the impact that this has on us today, knowing, Father, you've been faithful to your covenant promise from Genesis 3.15 on, that despite your people's complete rejection of you and rebellion against you continuously, you held fast to your covenant. And, and therefore, we can have hope knowing that you will always hold fast to your promises. So when we read the promises in the New Testament that you will neither leave us nor forsake us, we say, yes, we believe you. We hold fast to the promises that you will work all things for the good of those who love you, called according to your purpose. We say, yes, we believe you. But we We read that you will complete the good work which you began in us at the day of salvation. We can say, yes, we believe you because we see you as a covenant-keeping God. And there's no way you can interpret the story of the Old Testament any other way than God holding fast to his covenant despite a people's rejection and rebellion of him. So thank you for who you are and thank you for Jesus and the promises he's given us in the new covenant that we can trust in them. We love you, Lord. Thank you for our time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.